Welcome to another episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. Uh, today's episode is really fascinating. We're joined by two guests, Dr. Josie Carmona, who is a repeat guest uh, that we've had on the podcast a few times, and Dr. David Luke. They joined Josh and I to talk about uh, the construct of race. Recently in the news, we've had individuals come forward that have um, been posing as people of color, uh, and later to find out they are actually white, and they've been using um, their whiteness to navigate uh, spaces uh, and and the the um, identification as people of color um, in, in a way to benefit them. And also, uh, so we wanted to get into the, the, the discussion about what is race, and, and why why do we still uh, have a, a race-based society and, and what that means. Um, but before we do that, we talk a little bit about the president's executive order uh, banning critical race theory and discussions on whiteness and white supremacy and white privilege um, using federal money uh, in federal agencies. And we also talk about um, the decision that came out on September 23rd regarding the officers that murdered Breonna Taylor. Um, at the recording of this episode, we are 196 days removed from Breonna Taylor's murder on March 13th. And so we wanted to get into that discussion as well and talk about that. So without further ado, we're in the studio. I agree with that statement. Just before the recording. For the record. I was hoping you'd get that in for a sound bite. <laughs> well, you know. Let's get the show on the road. Uh, welcome everybody back to the Whiteness in America studios, virtually, because we're social distancing here on the podcast. We're joined by uh, two wonderful, amazing guests today. One, our I, I think our resident guest, uh, Dr. Josie Carmona, is back again um, for another great talk. And for the first time on the episode on the podcast, Dr. David Luke. Although David did moderate um, an episode we did, we did a live episode uh, last year, and um, he facilitated that process. So welcome to the two of you to Whiteness in America, an illegal podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So today um, we are going to dive into this concept. We we're seeing a lot of folks um, uh, faking race or, or trying to pass as... Um, a person of color, and that's going to be our main topic. We're going to really get into this construct of race and how it's um, devised in the United States and how we use it for power and privilege or not. Um, and uh, I, the two of you have a lot of experience in talking about this, and I, the, Josh and I really want to make this a, a two or three part series. So this is the first part of that. But before we get to that, I wanted to bring up two things that were going on in, in relevant news. The first is the executive order by the president, um, essentially um, banning uh, federal agencies for using money uh, to do any training that is related to, which it's surprising that he knows about critical race theory, but critical race theory, talk about whiteness or white privilege. And um, I just was curious about your thoughts on that, considering all four of us do work in this area and um did you have any reaction to that um his his language i don't know if you've read the executive order is uh this work indoctrinates government employees with divisive and harmful sex and race-based ideologies 
For government contractors, he said, it's part of an ongoing White House critique of critical race theory, a framework for examining the ways racism manifests in society. Um, he calls it un-American propaganda and is rooted in the pernicious and false belief that America is an irredeemably racist and sexist country. Um, so that's what's going on from this during a, a pandemic. The president of the United States thinks it's really good to um, pretend like we're not racist as a country. So uh, did you have much reaction to that at all? I, I wasn't surprised. I don't think it's coming from him. I felt like this had Stephen Miller written all over it. Yeah, um, he's who knows what critical race theory is, right? <laughs> yeah, so what, what bothered me was I don't think our work stops. I think um, most institutions, like especially at ours, they're struggling. Although we did immediately, we're in a search for a chief diversity officer, like a VP position at the cabinet level. And uh, there were a lot of questions that came up right after that announcement about, well, now that this is illegal, do we even need to have this position, right? And so I think it makes our job a lot harder. I think it makes us targets, but um, I also have faith that there's enough people within higher education um, that will push back, particularly in ethnic studies classes, but it doesn't change my um, concerns. Like I'm teaching, I teach La Chicana online and I generally have like black and brown students in my class, which is really fascinating. You know, Chicanos, Mexicans, students from here on the border that um, are actually just searching for their own identity. And I'll occasionally get a white student in my class who will push back. So right after that announcement, I had shown uh, Dr. Cabrera's, Nolan Cabrera's white immunity TED talk. And um, so I had this one student who just went in hard for a few, you know, on a few of his classmates, but then backed off. Um, so I had concerns, but I mean, I have to deal with those students. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I was, a little worried that I might end up on turning point or something, but if it is, I'm going to be like, bring it, just bring it. Oh, that's funny. You know, I'm, I'm teaching an assessment class this semester at an in a university that I'm not affiliated with. And um, I'm thinking about completely scrapping next week's module and just assigning them Derek uh, Bell's uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well book and just I'll copy some sections out of it and have them read it, even though it has little to do with assessment, but just as a kind of a point of, we need to all be a little bit more critical and understanding our framework of how we look at procedural law practice and things like that. But yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. So. Well, and I looked at the executive order and, and I was just thinking like how I could still say things. So like um, it's, it's uh, prohibiting divisive concepts like that one race or sex is inherently superior to another, which some of these things, the way that they're worded, it feels like uh, it's more symbolic gesture. And, and I think, um, I mean, it, in my job, I reached out to legal counsel and just said like, what, is this, what does this do? Because I, I think I can still talk about what systemic racism is as long as I'm not saying this is how things are and this is reality and you must agree to this in this, you know, I can present academic concepts that are, and and I still will do that. And I think I can do that in ways that I would be able to defend. 
as it's fine. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, it, it feels like a symbolic thing. And I think the other piece is in the context of widespread protests and uprisings about the recognition of systemic racism, the reaction is we need to not learn about systemic racism because people are starting to realize um, like white people broadly are starting to realize, oh, systemic racism, this is a thing. I need to learn more. And it's like, no, nah, no, nah, you're not going to learn it there. Yeah, let's burn the books because then the knowledge will go away, right? Well, we need the, the patriotic history, right? We need the, this oh. is liberal propaganda. We need patriotic book, propaganda. patriotic history. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Whatever that means. No. Josh, what's your take? Well, I was... um. My, when I first heard this happen, I, I was a little shocked because, again, I didn't think that the administration even knew what critical race theory was. And I was like, what? Like, wh why? You know, why are you all trying to dismantle this? Like, I thought this would be the last thing on your or not even not even on the list because anyways. Um, but it is interesting. I would have to agree with David that... Um, you know, I think there are people that are actually starting to listen and challenge their own thinking in this country. And, you know, that's not good for the, for this administration's camp. And so, you know, just like TikTok, <laughs> just like anything else that starts to turn against this administration, it's like, oh, we got to shut this down real quick because we got to win this election. So, um, but yeah, I just think it's interesting and the reaction is patriotic or patriotism education. Um, but I was also just thinking of this too, here in Denver Public Schools, we've started what's called the um, Black Excellence Initiative where every school has to now uh, implement black excellence into their schools. And we have, now there's a question in the in the in the planning backward planning that our teachers have to do the address i mean the question reads like this how will this lesson directly serve your black students and we had teachers erase that and then turn in their lesson plans for us to review and i'm like uh what do you think i was not going to notice that <laughs> you know so i just think that there's just it's really interesting right now to to and that was a reaction actually uh, one of our teachers said that they, you know, they were just trying to play safe by what the president said. That's what I was told at my school. So I just think it's really interesting at this time. I kept thinking about what um, Lindsay wrote last night in our text thread and this idea of like um, an article I read a while back. I think it was um, Eve Tux on decolonization and um, the idea that you have to give up power. So why would anybody really want to give up power if we're really going to eradicate racism in this country and sexism? And so, you know, it doesn't benefit white people and white males in particular. Um, and so that's why there's such a huge push, right? Like there's a, a real fear. Um, I do, however, believe that there's quite a bit of um, white people who recognize the value. I'm not sure they quite understand what it means in terms of giving up power, because of course, um, as Nolan Cabrera says, you know, they've been immune to like this system. So that's why I find it interesting when you find white individuals who want to become, you know, brown or black um, and take on that persona. But I, I think it's a part of their, um, inherent need for power 
And so even though they're showing up and representing as like, you know, either black or Latina, um, and I'm just, you know, being a little sexist there with the, um, you know, there were two women though so far that I'm aware of just recently. Um, it, to me, it's that uh, subconscious need for power um, because the way that they behaved was in essence um, saying like, I can be a better Latina than you can and I'm going to achieve power and status in ways that you can't because I'm an insider and I know the system. And so that's what makes it so dangerous and so disgusting to me. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I, and I think back to the concept of power and giving it up, and I think that it, it is stoked in fear and a lot of the reaction you're seeing with the executive order, with folks um, starting to scale back on the support, white folks, I'll just name it, white folks starting to scale back on support of Black Lives Matter movements and try to do the, oh, yeah, but they're rioting, oh, yeah, they're destructive, you know, it's it's that fear of, um, you know, I supported this because it was the thing, and now... I'm tired of that thing because there's other things going on and and I'm starting to realize that maybe the shift will also um, take something from me, right? And so I think, yeah, I think you are seeing that and now you're having the president try to give ammunition to folks both physically and literally and metaphorically to challenge um, people that are trying to dismantle systemic racism in practice and systemic racism in our federal government agencies, um, which is where it's embedded throughout um, a multitude of institutions. So I do think that's really interesting. Yeah, David? Yeah, and we know in the next 30-ish years, the numerical majority race in the U.S. will no longer be white. And there's some anxiety I believe um, among some of the current president's supporters around that that's driving some of this as well. How do we maintain power in a time where white people are recognizing systemic racism and, and seem to be trying to figure out what to do with it and we know we're gonna be outnumbered soon? Um, you know, How do we then keep winning an election when our, our demographic is shrinking and shrinking and you know, the electoral college is a buffer and now maybe we can um, contribute to some mistrust of the voting um, system, the integrity of the votes and, and mail-in ballots and all this stuff. I think one sort of underlying factor is that we see the, the browning of America. Yeah, I, it, just what David said just now just made me think about, so I know I had mentioned to you like this concept of colorismo in Latinx communities. And I've since, really decided that it's really anti-blackness, right, in our culture. And so there's a strong movement to um, broaden who we consider white, right? And so initially when we thought about the melting pot in this country, um, we started to include um, Italians and Polish and um, Eastern Europeans and saying, okay, you can be part of this melting pot of whiteness. And I, I foresee that in order to hang on to this power, there's a strong push to encourage white passing or light skin Latinx folks to subscribe to this idea that they can find acceptance in this movement. Um, and that would add numbers, right? Um, because in our 
communities, we don't identify um, our black roots. Um, and so what we've done, even in scholarship, is talked about it as colorismo, right? And um, it occurred to me recently that no, it's anti-blackness, right? And um, anti-indigenous, right? And so I can see that happening. And you see it in the Cuban American vote for Republicans. I've seen it a lot more happening in second and third generation Chicanos. I mean, they wouldn't even identify as Chicanos. Um, they call themselves Americans of Mexican descent or just Americans, right? Um, who have grandparents, you know, that were undocumented at one time. And so it's really powerful the way that it moves. And then this connection to, to Russia, right? So it's like you, you find the, this group of white people who are losing power. And I think what they're saying is like, yeah, they might have been our enemies, but they're white. So we'd rather, you know, ally ourselves with them because they're white, right? And that whole narrative. And it's just, it's actually, um, it's very scary to me. Um, and it's so ingrained in our culture that we uphold whiteness in the Latinx community in so many ways that I think people don't even understand that they're doing it. So we have a lot of work to do within our own communities. Yeah, I think this has um, been a constant a reality um, within our communities for centuries. When I think about those that have been given the, pow the power to be leaders um, for centuries, like in Mexico or Central America, and how, you know, white passing has been this almost level of prestige or elitism that is, you know, then told to the rest that this is what we want to achieve. Like this is now the, you know, the ideal um, look or presentation. And so it's interesting that you say that though, Josie, because um, even personally, I see, you know, family members that support Trump and they think it's, they think that it's like an elite move, like that, like the rest of us are just, not as hip like cognitively as they are and that because they are identifying and latching themselves onto this administration it's like you know we're not as advanced or understanding and so it does kind of go back to this like division this this kind of dichotomy of i'm over here with these folks and you are still over here with those folks so i think it's interesting that you bring it up and and you know David, I think you're right too, that there's a lot of shifting of what reality is. And and that's, you know, that's the scary part about um, all of this is that we are now being told, I mean, it's hard to know what's real anymore. Like, where can we find true COVID data right now? Because of the administration having um, control over what we see and understand about COVID, it's, it's horrible. And so, the the idea that they are that they are trying to shift reality for everybody to control and and to continue to maintain power so i think you're totally right about that and that goes from everything from scholarly work to the food we eat to the diseases we get to the way we die to the way we live and it's you know it's 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 really interesting to watch this administration constantly just put up these roadblocks where truth exists and they shut that door for people to to understand it so 
I think you both bring up really, really interesting points. I also think it's connected to, you know, we, we the question that you, we all hit on, like, why critical race theory? And if we remember, critical race theory was developed by Derek Bell in the legal concept, right? And so if we think about this from the concept of, like, where does that power dynamic stay? Where is that embedment? It's in the justice system. And so if you dismantle the thing that was meant to start critically examining the justice system from a um, racialized lens or a, a, a non-neutral racial lens, um, then it's easy to uphold whiteness. It's easy to uphold status quo. It's easy to let three cops who killed a, a woman who was unarmed sleeping go um, and do it in the sense of what we saw yesterday it was in the name of justice that they were they felt also threatened and therefore you know no harm no foul on their part because they were defending themselves but we're going to charge a dude for shooting a wall right and so you know it's been 196 days since march 13th uh at the time of this recording and like you know i you know josie and i were talking before the two of you joined and i was like i don't even know if i can talk about this and I uh, shared with her you know you know David was like ah yesterday he's like I don't know if I can talk about it it's just these things are getting harder and harder to do and to engage in and to and I think that that's part of this move right like the more obstacles you put in place the more difficult it becomes the more draining it becomes and I'm a white person so I have a lot of fluidity and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, currency in in our society to do this and navigate and I and I feel exhausted so I can only imagine what it's like navigating this as a person of color um, yeah so I, I guess I just if there's any thoughts on um, Brianna Taylor the connection to that too because I, I really do think like the critical race theory piece is connected to the legal aspect I mean th that has been um, a point of this administration is to in, to embed things in the justice system as much as possible, and that was initially that my thought when I saw the critical race theory thing come out of this administration. Yeah, I th I think um, so. Just just thinking about the details of the case, and and I I do think it's useful if you can imagine different people involved. So like if you imagine that she was a white woman, and um, like the neighbors who were wantonly endangered or whatever, right? So the one officer fired 10 shots, but um, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend fired one shot because it was a no-knock warrant. He said they didn't announce it. If they did and he and Brianna didn't hear them, someone's breaking into their house and he owns a firearm, presumably for if someone's breaking into your house, right, to defend yourself. He shoots one shot and hits an officer in the leg. They fire over 20 rounds in the apartment. And they, they scapegoated the one officer that they said, oh, he fired 10 shots and he was just going crazy. And then they, the other two is nothing, like everything was okay about that. And then you see people looking for reasons to justify, and it's become so routine because we've seen so many of these, but looking for reasons to justify that this was okay. She wasn't that great of a person, right? That's, that's what you'll see. She must, She was maybe connected to something about drugs and something that we don't like. She did something we don't like that we think is not good. And so you shouldn't feel really bad about it. Um, and and it, it's just like, the argument is very clearly, her life did not matter. So don't feel bad because her life did not matter. So when the response is black lives matter, 
that's why people need to keep saying that. Um, because it's so easy for people to go to the argument that, well, this life didn't really matter and people to be like, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, George Floyd, you know, he wasn't a perfect person. It's like, oh, I didn't know you have to be a perfect person to not get um, publicly executed in the street by a police officer. Um, Jacob Blake is the same way, right? Like shot seven right. times in the back and people are like, oh, well, he, you know, had some history. It, and it's serious stuff. Like there's stuff yeah. that, that allegedly he might have done. And But that still, public execution is not something, again, that we are supposed to be doing in a society like this, right? So, Yeah. Yeah, and if if he was a white teenage male, he would be well. His life is really valuable. He made a mistake. Well, We've Kyle seen it Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse right. cleaned <laughs> graffiti yeah. once. You've seen that once. picture. Yeah, right? he he yeah, yeah, and so. he publicly executed people, and it was totally cool. Sure. Yeah, yeah he was threatened. Yeah. There's two systems: one for white males and females, white humans. And then there's one for people of color. And the reason they want to get rid of like the 1619 project and they don't want to really talk about history and this like executive orders out there and they're going after education is that they don't want people to know like we traded um, slavery for the incarceration system, right? Um, most people don't understand that that was the only way that you could have enslaved people as if they were incarcerated. And so you know, they found a way around it. And um, there's just two systems. And it's hard for people to understand because they'll answer you, well, if you were just following the law. And it's like, yeah, but the law is very clear, right? Like innocent until proven guilty and no cop should ever be, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. And yet we see that over and over. And it it bothers me, it hurts me that we have become so desensitized that we look for reasons to justify, right? We don't, we've dehumanized an entire race so quickly. Um, and it's, I think last night when I, I opened like the news app and I just, I didn't have any, I had no hope that anything different was going to come out of this. Um, I knew going into it, nothing was going to happen. I knew that this was all performative because we have a track record. We know what's going to happen. And they're always going to point to a loophole, right? Zimmerman was the first time. They're always going to point to, well, the way that the charges were written, right? Um, and I just, this is where when people say, well, we just need reforms. No, we need to burn the whole motherfucker down is what we have to do. Right, because it doesn't serve everyone, and right. and I well, don't know how we get there. And and I think I think to your point, when what bothered me reflecting on it more was how I was not surprised. Like it's an outrage, and I'm outraged, and also was not surprised that that was the outcome. Um, and I think often about the roots of modern policing going back to slave patrols and night watches designed to protect white property from people of color. And at times when people of color were white property as slave patrols to return the property, right? So Kyle Rittenhouse goes to a, a peaceful protest armed, heavily armed to protect property of people that he doesn't know. 
and the police are like, oh, we're glad to have you here. And, and, and that's when, you know, like blow it up and start over because this isn't working because, you know, I understand that. I, th I think I, Tom and I often talk about, you know, the way different institutions were formed and how they are. And, and that's really when you're thinking about systemic racism, like having an honest discussion about the history of the U.S., like racism was a big part of the history of the U.S., and that's not unpatriotic. That's just historical fact. Yes. And th that is a great way to transition to our main topic for the next couple episodes, David. Way to, way to go, you sociologist. That was deep and profound. <laughs> Damn. I wish I had those merits. Uh, anyway, uh, so let's talk about the construct of race. Oh, yeah, these are, these are constructs that exist that we all understand. They're clearly defined. When race is not clearly defined it is an ever-moving target it is an ever-moving process it is an ever-moving definition based on what's white and what's not and i say that very intentionally not to otherize or to uh demean folks of color but really the the purpose of the development of race was who has the power and who doesn't and it was based off skin color it was and i know folks don't like the comparability and there's some argument about when when I and other folks call it a caste system, but it was developed in some nature as a caste system of of have and have not, and the delineation of the of the radiation of, of radiation of race. So let's jump into it. Thoughts on that? Because we've had white people pose as race, uh, as people of color. Josie, you started that conversation already. So um, let's let's get in. Let's go. Let's have fun. Not that we're not having fun already. I always have fun talking about illegal things on a Thursday night. When the Nuggets are playing and losing by five. Oh, they are? Oh, it was halftime. I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> Why'd you do that to me? Spoiler alert. <laughs> On Saturday when this goes up, the Nuggets are down at halftime. God. <laughs> Anyways, Josie. So we talk about this in my class. Um, and... I've talked about it. I've been leading a discussion, a, a hate comment book discussion at my institution on how to be an anti-racist. And it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, and the thing is, is that you're right. You know, whiteness has always been determined about, determines who has access to power and privilege, right? And certain groups have been allowed in a little bit at a time. So we'll start with the Irish, right? During Bacon's Rebellion, when they started to organize with um, enslaved black people and the, you know, white men in power were like, oh shit, we can't have this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to offer you like limited access. We're going to make you feel better. And this is where you start to see the idea of like painting people of color as inferior, right? Both um, physically and mentally and all of those things. And then you add the layer of like Hispanic or Latinos or still conquered by Europeans and colonized um, white, blue-eyed conquerors. Um, and how in this country, um, you know, we, we come up with the label of Hispanic. Again, it says white Hispanic or white non-Hispanic because on my birth certificate, the race says white, right? But the right underneath it says Hispanic. And I, I call myself a race scholar. I don't even know what the fuck that means. 
like when I see that, like the when I see Hispanic and like his non non Hispanic, like white Hispanic non, like I've just seen it so many different ways. I'm just like, what? Why? Why are we? What does that even? What does well, that even do? Out right, like there was right. a court case in Austin where you know someone asked for a jury of their peers, and that's when they were like, well, yeah, you're white, but you're really Mexican, right? Um, and so we don't want you to have access to education, to a fair trial, to all of these things. And so but we want you on our team to vote for us and put us in power. Right. We want to give you a little bit of access, a little taste. Right. But and not the full. Yeah. It doesn't help that in Mexico you had um, leadership and dictators who aspired to be white, right? Like Porfirio Diaz led for 30 years. Um, he actually bleached his skin. He sold the country to France and Germany and, and outsourced everything because there was this strong desire. And you can still see those elements in the wealthy. They still have direct connections to French and Spanish royalty, German connections. Here in El Paso, in Juarez, the five top families, they might as well be white, right? Um, and they have actually married white, like, uh, people from El Paso, the developers and the millions, millionaires and billionaires, and they've created these empires. So when you talk about caste system, I totally hear what you're saying, right? It's about um, consolidating power. And so then it becomes about culture and ethnicity. Whereas with, I think, Black people, you can't get away from the fact that your skin is Black, right? And so when you said that that woman said, I, like, I see them and I make them Black, well, that's a power thing on her part to say that, right? But a black person who wakes up or a Latino, uh, you know, Afro-Latino wakes up, they can't ignore their skin color. They recognize that this is how they're visualized. So while I might be able to walk into um, a meeting and initially there might be a question of, is she ethnic? Is she white, right? They're not gonna say she's Chicana. Right, it depends on where the, I. Am. The framing of is she ethnic? There's so much <laughs> loaded into that too, right? Yeah. That's where the white passing becomes super problematic in our community because it gives you an opening, but people don't recognize that that opening doesn't mean true acceptance and access to power and privilege. So I'm gonna shut up because I'm like I feel like I'm on a soapbox. I want to hear what David has to say. No, that's good. I. So, I mean, the Hispanic ethnicity question thing on the census is an interesting one. And I, I think a lot about um, the census as a place where it's clear that the construction of race, I mean, the census every 10 years, they try to figure out how to classify these and create these groups that don't exist in a biological uh, reality and, and that they're, they're just outlining. So I, th I often talk about the example of these two court cases in 1922 and 1923, Ozawa and Thine. And um, Ian Haney-Lopez has a book, um, White by Law, which is really good. He's a legal scholar. And um, so like Ozawa is a Japanese guy in the US who's been there for a long time, kind of established roots, whatever. And he petitions for citizenship. And one of the conditions of citizenship at the time was to be a free white person. And so he says, you know, look at my skin, I'm, I'm white. And they say, well, based on the anthropological evidence at, 
of that time, you're a mongoloid and not a Caucasoid, so you can't, um, you can't be a citizen. So like six months or so later, Thind, who's an Indian guy, um, petitions, and he's thinking Indians are classified as Caucasoid, so I'm, I'm in. And the court basically said, well, everybody knows Indians aren't white, so no, you don't get citizenship. And so it was like, we'll just use whatever we want to create this barrier and maintain this differentiation to keep our, our power. Um, I, I thought a lot about when, when Tom said that someone said it bothered them that you said, I identify as something, because that's a very uniquely like monoracial thing to do. So as a multiracial person, um, I can identify as white because my mom is white. So I could say that I'm white and I recognize that my experience is not that of a typical white person. I have white friends who don't share a lot of my experiences. Um, so my dad is Indian, um, but I'm often mistaken for lots of different things. And so I have an awkward sort of, um, you know, if, if someone presumes they share your racial identity, there's some, there's a feeling of connectedness there. And then to break it to them that that is not true in a way that's not saying like, uh, implying that it would be bad if it were true, right? So like, um, and that you're not trying to mislead someone. So then, then I think about these um, situations with like, going back, Rachel Dolezal, and now the two more recent cases of people deliberately, um, deliberately misrepresenting their race. And I, I've even had it, I mean, it was suggested to me by some scholars who I respect that in like participant observation research projects, I could misrepresent myself and get some really interesting data. And I was so uncomfortable with that idea. Um, but, but like Dolezal was like, you know, she was, trying to get into Howard and then she was white because that would work to her advantage. When she wanted to work in the NAACP in Spokane, then she was black. And so, and it seemed to be a similar thing with these two scholars. I think um, the grad student at Wisconsin who had an offer at Fresno State, I feel like for her, there's some like capital in wokeness, right? That, that like, um, you know, if you're, if you're privileged in a number of ways, then you have to, do more to gain that credibility. And so it's the same sort of thing of like, well, if I present as, you know, a person of color in this setting, then people will really um, give me this respect that I want for being woke, um, which is so trendy right now. I mean, they've got Black Lives Matter on the courts in the NBA bubble um, and corporations are saying Black Lives Matter. And one of my friends, said, you know, he's worried that we're really close to Black Lives Matter brought to you by Citibank, right? Because it's it's just become this like corporatized profit, profitable thing. You know, I was, I was, that brings up a lot of good points here. And I was just thinking about this, the system of education and the elitism that exists in education that can sometimes classify you or elevate you to be white. And what I mean by that is there have been many times in my experience growing up that if you were educated, you were trying to be white. And I'm sure, Josie, you've heard this, or I don't know, David, like if you heard this growing up, like, 
why are you trying to sound smart? You trying to be white, you know? And you're like, I am white. (laughs) But I remember growing up hearing this and like that there was this um, mountain to achieve of being a person of color that being smart then equalized you to being white. And this was like first grade and shit, you know? So when we think about how deep the division and the dichotomy exists that a person of color and whiteness is considered like this uh, pillar of greatness, like it's so deep that five-year-olds say this. And so when we become educated, and I mean we as people of color, it's like then we're trying to achieve whiteness and and what you know and what that means and i think even as we get into adulthood people you know we have a lot of sayings in even in our culture like muy chingon like oh you think you're all bad now you think you're all good now and it's like no <laughs> that's not necessarily why i went to school um and so i wanted to pose this question to everybody here is like where do we see this in the academy where you know we see that colorism and and that you know that split or like whiteness is this greatness that exists to be educated i see it in the way that we do written work and what's accepted as published and not publishable material i i was in a job interview as a to, for a, a lecturer uh, position and they you know we were and it was for a, a, um, a program that focused on social justice and they the last question was something like talk about a time where you really had to change your practice and i was like well historically i was trained in a very whiteness way of framing how good writing looks um you all know who my advisor was that was the same person that taught me how to write academically when i was in in my master's program so when i went to teach i taught writing and and research like she did initially and i had to deprogram myself on that. So I talked about that and I said, you know, I think the challenge in academia is we both have to give space for folks to be able to write in a way that is true to their way of framing language and using language and, and identifying things, um, you know, and at the same time, give them the tools to be able to publish. But I don't know yet and I'm not smart enough how to do both of those because I think we still have journals that still want this APA framed in white rules of how to make things sound educated. And I use those words very intentionally because it is framed from a whiteness context. But yet at the same time, you have a a counter resistance in the academy to say, wait a minute, we can do this differently. But our ways of getting knowledge in publications is not caught up yet. And I I don't know how to push on that, and I, I know I'm not a good enough writer. And I think even at some point, you know, I used to read Josie's papers in our early program, and I, I'm just going to say, I lended all over her papers, and um, and and because that's what I was, that's how I was colonized to think about writing and 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 and, and um, framing research. So that's something for me, I think, in the academy where we still frame whiteness and and, and the desired way that we. Um, portray knowledge in written publication to be um, thought of as high high level. Well, and I'll to kind of build on that. So um, 
you know, sociology, it tends to be regarded sometimes, sometimes pejoratively as a progressive discipline. I don't know. I've reviewed um, for some of the sociological journals, and I will tell you that. So, um, <laughs> anyways, but, my, but um, you know, I was told by um, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who was uh, president of American Sociological Association, and... Uh, Look at you just you name know, drop on this podcast. The theory of uh, colorblind racism is sort of his thing. Um, so, but he told he told me and a, a bunch of others that if you want to publish in the top two journals in sociology, you cannot say racism, systemic racism, white supremacy. You have to say racial bias, um, and you have to frame it in this way. And and so it's diluting and softening the scholarship at the elite level. And I was thinking even further beyond that, um, you know, the people that get into top programs or top positions and top schools are also from top schools. And these are places that are historically and contemporarily exclusive that rely on um, racist admissions criteria. Um, and, and so like, you know, the research that's coming out gets whitened in the process of um, going through higher education. So, you know, the, the people that are often have um, really critical contributions are sort of kept out of the elite institutions where their voices would be magnified further, I think, in many cases. And there, there are notable exceptions, but... I, you know, and David, I think we're working on a project together where I, I have pushed and felt like what we're doing is being um, downgraded because we're trying to get money to fund our project and because we want to be palatable to the donors that are going to give us money. So we're not using language like white supremacy and whiteness in the way that we're approaching it. We're using other things, and, and that has been a source of frustration, although I understand why. But, right. Yeah. I mean, it, right. it's 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 hard because if you use the language, then do you not get the funding to support the work? And and so, like, I think about a parallel as, um, you know, I was at another institution. I was being taught to do this unconscious bias workshop to facilitate it. Um, and it was it was crappy because it, it was like Tom's bias, Josh's bias. Um, we're all biased. We all need to think slower, and that's the answer. Josie's not biased, right? Um, and 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 that's the the feel good takeaway, because everybody's got to work on themselves, and we all have bias. And you can do an unconscious bias workshop and not talk about race or racism at all if you want to, and so people will do that. Um, and actually, so then I I came to where I work now. I had to be screened by the um, the more elite. Uh, campus and uh, someone told me uh you did okay in my in my presentation but can you not talk about racism next time because you lost some people when you did that and i agreed on our campus that i would happily they've been trying to get someone to do the workshop and because i already had some exposure to it um, somewhere else it made it easier for me to get certified to do it or whatever and i i i agreed to it because i knew that i could control the delivery then and so I could make it be about race and racism more so than other ways. And so it was like, a, you know, I, I think it's a similar sort of like, 
you know, how can you make the biggest impact? And, and sometimes it, it's a difficult game of like, you know, where do I, where do I draw a line and say, I, I can, I have to do it this way. And where can I kind of flex? I would add that um, I think that it's ingrained since, you know, before we even start school because we've decided what the cultural hierarchy is going to be. And so we are told early on through everything we read, what we're exposed to in K through 12, what we see on TV, what's valued, right? So what is, what, what do we consider professional? And then we get to writing and yeah, Tom like um, redlined some of my earlier work. Um, but then my dissertation, as it unfolded, really revolved around this idea of how do Chicana Latinas push back um, on the academy and show up authentically in their research. And so I was really proud of my, um, my dissert final dissertation because I wrote in Spanglish and I made some really like pointed decisions to like not italicize the Spanish, to not um, like define all of the terms to write authentically, and I was very proud of it. I recognize that it probably will never get published, you know, any article won't get published in a major journal, but that's a decision I've made. But I haven't tied my desire to write or publish. It's not tied to my daily work. So I'm able to separate, right? Like I'm an administrator, that's my bread and butter, that's where I earn my living. Teaching is how I stay sane because it helps me connect and I can be bolder in that space. And if I choose to pursue publishing and grant writing, I know what I have to do to play the game. I recently wrote a trio grant. I mean, I couldn't even get my institutional analysis person to get me clear data on to show the gap between um, the performance between Latinx students and white students because on our campus, oh, well, everybody's performing the same way. Everybody's doing poorly. So let's not show the, dis you know, the difference between the brown and the white kids. Um, but I think we make choices and then we perpetuate it, right? So I even working in my, with my colleagues, they're like, you know, you don't, you don't um, grade for grammar. And in my class, it's a 300 level course. I do not go through and redline anybody. Um, I ask for content and the whole point of my class is to encourage people to tell their story and to see themselves as writers, to see themselves as creators, of knowledge and that they are legitimate. Um, do I know they're going to go into other classes and they're going to have to check the boxes? Absolutely, but I'm not going to be that teacher. Again, my like employment isn't tied, like my survival isn't tied to that so I can make that choice. Um, and so like David said, like you have to make decisions about how far you're going to go and where you're going to draw the line um, in the way you show up in the academy. Right, because I've decided in this new world that I'm going to be the angry Chicana and I'm going to call out white supremacy and I'm going to say like this is um, totally racist and I'm going to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, but I kind of feel like I've earned that because along the way I stayed quiet for way too long. And that is so disappointing to look back on a career and realize that I sat in meetings and I showed up white and I perpetuated whiteness um, because I wasn't in a position 
um, where I could be authentic. You know my evolution from when I started in the program. Yeah, um, and that's the thing. We all evolved in that process too, because I write very differently now and I edit differently now than what I did, right? Like so, but I had to decolonize myself on what is acceptable writing and what is academic writing and not. And, and the fact that you had to like, it's really interesting that you were like, I had, I earned being a vocal person. I earned being the angry Chicana. Like, no one should have to earn that. That should just be, right? Like, you should be able to show up and be authentic. You should be able to show up and be a person of color and be angry in a meeting and not have people just be like, oh, they're mad because they're black or they're mad because they're brown or, you know, like that, that shouldn't, that's part of this, right? Like, I can go to a meeting, be mad, and people are like, oh, okay. That's cool. Right, because people forget, right. and I was joking about the fact of that being mad, but they, I pointed it out in a meeting that I had earlier this week. It's like, do you guys recognize what you perceive to be anger could really be trauma, right? Like, there's such a lack of love and care amongst us as humans that um, we cannot see that people show up with their trauma and they act in their trauma. And then we want them to forget. Um, and say, like, get over it as if it's that easy, right? Because if you show vulnerability, um, people immediately make decisions about how they're going to use and abuse you in this world. Josh, are you okay? You to say? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking that in there for a minute. Um, no, I was just thinking about um, being unforgiving. Um, there was a point in my career where to identify and to accept like the ideologies of like white whiteness and education was like an accomplishment. Like I get that system. I understand that system. I master that system. I can do that system. And then you step away and you're like, I just mastered something that actually hurts my people, our people, people of color, minoritized individuals. And how do I unlearn something that I believe so much in? It's, and I always use Santa as an example. It's like, Santa's not real, but yet we perpetuate that story so much. Why? <laughs> like, we gotta stop it. It's not real. Are we afraid of breaking what we've known as tradition, a tradition based on whiteness? And so I think that those traditions live in education so much that it's hard to unlearn. Um, I even challenge like our administrators here in Denver Public Schools, like this whole idea of best practices that these are best practice and i said for who you know i don't give a shit anymore to ask that question for who for you for for you because <laughs> it didn't work for me and i grew up like you said with a lot of trauma and so i don't want our kids to go through that anymore so i think i'm i, I don't give a shit and i think you guys know like i will find another job i don't care what it is i will put it on the line if somebody wants to fire me fire me like, I don't care because I get a lot of summer jobs. My friend says I get summer Jones jobs. Houses. Yeah. <laughs> like, I only have a job for a little bit of time. But there's, it's just jobs. But the work continues. And so I don't care to put it on the line anymore. I never really have. But, you know, it's never been to the point where I've almost been fired. But I think you're right, though, Josie, that there's no there's no point of, of feeling um, any remorse. I'm, I'm, like, over it. <laughs> I'm really over it. So kind of last thoughts on this, um, thinking about the construct of race 
and you know david brought up the point of the census and like it's the government attempt to continue to um frame this construct that doesn't exist anyway so what is the evolution of race where do we go next do we because there are cultural elements that are also attached to race it's not it, it's it's not like you can unravel it right because then you're taking away i think things that particularly minoritized individuals have developed that is you know in that frame that is so powerful um in a positive way uh in the cultural aspects um you know positivity in blackness um positivity in brownness right like those things are part of now the cultural elements and so what do we do because we now have this system that has been created and developed and it's based off of something that doesn't exist in any way do we keep living the lie of santa that's what we're going to name this episode by the way living the lie of santa i think, I think that'd be fun <laughs> be good for all the kids <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't see uh, I don't see a future without Santa in this case, right? I think we we are built on Santa, and I'll stop saying Santa now, so it's clearer. But you know, it, <laughs> race has been foundational in 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 the U.S. as an example, but in in the creation of the U.S., it's been a, an an important piece, and so it's it's more a matter of how does our racial hierarchy or racial caste uh, continue to evolve? And I think, um, I mean, there, there's a number of sort of theories on it. Um, two bigger ones that I'm aware of. One is that the um, that the primary um, divide in the U.S. will become a black non-black divide, um, and one is. Um, sort of a, a three-tiered system more similar to what we see in many Latin American countries where there's there's white and then there's like a, a middle category mestizo or in South Africa there's white colored and black and then and then there would be black also um, and and you know the 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 interesting part of this conversation is like it sounds like based on what we've said that we would like the idea of race to go away. But so then the solution might intuitively seem like let's stop, maybe they should stop tracking race in the census and maybe they should. And then when we do that, then we know that racial inequality will persist and worsen and everything and we will have no evidence for it anymore. So it's like, a, you know, people, people don't like that the government is making me tell them their race, but the alternative is not good. Um, so I, I mean, I think we're stuck in this because this is how how things have been built um, for at least my lifetime. I'd agree, David. Actually, Candy talks about that. You can't get rid of race right now because funding is tied to race, right? Like even in the census, there's a huge um, controversy over where we whether we're going to count undocumented humans or not, and what does that mean and you know, all the commercials point to um, we need the funding, right? Title One, uh, or is it Title One? Is that for the Josh for um, yeah. minoritized school districts? Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I would agree. Like we have tied any kind of fixes that we've been able to develop within the system to race. So we can't um, 
stop counting people's race. Plus, it doesn't make sense. We are clearly visually different from one another, right? We speak different languages. We participate in different cultural norms. I think that going back to Audre Lorde, where we talk about let's embrace that difference, right? Instead of continuing to harp, like, to harp on the difference as a bad thing, why not highlight how good it is um, and celebrate it in ways that young kids who are going to school celebrate their names and celebrate um, their cultures and they don't feel like they have to hide who they are and assimilate. And so I think part of it has to be a really anti-racist movement or else I do believe we'll end up with the system you mentioned before where we have this like white, black and some some of us in the middle, right? And, um, and so while it is a construct, um, just like we know that gender is a construct, but people have an issue with that. Um, and we're, we fight on the daily, the patriarchy, but I feel like the patriarchy and racism go hand in hand and it's a very powerful um, system. And you have women who perpetuate the patriarchy and you have people of color who perpetuate racism because at some level they want a deep, deep inside, they want a connection and they want to be accepted. And that to me is like, really gets to the core of what Bell Hook says in terms of like, if we just could pursue an ethic of love and care and truly love one another, um, maybe we could get past some of this nonsense. Um, but we're not anywhere near that. I don't know if it's gonna happen in our lifetime. I hope our young kids do. I really have a lot of hope in them. But I mean, I don't know if I'll be around. Yeah, Tom said final thoughts, but I had more thoughts because I hear brilliant things and then it makes me think of other things. Um, so I, I was just thinking about the, um, some of the earlier conversations about people passing and, and, and you know, the, the US model has always been assimilationist models, right? So immigrants come to the US and they do their best to assimilate and they tell their kids speak English and they wear, I've, my dad is an immigrant and I give him a hard time because he has a shirt. It's, he has one shirt. It's like a white polo shirt and it has a very small American flag here. And he asked me if I wanted to wear it once and I said, I don't want your immigrant shirt because I just think like that's, that's the things that immigrants do to be, hey, I'm cool, I'm, I like this country too. And I think that could be connected to with some of the um, people of color who are supporting Trump and thinking that it's a patriotic American thing to do, right? It's an effort to assimilate because assimilating with whiteness in the US would be advantageous. It's clear that whites are atop the hierarchy. And so how can we get there we need to do what they're doing. And so what you're, what you're suggesting a more multiculturalist orientation is really a revolutionary thing for the US. I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine that here. Um, so is it a both and like to decenter whiteness and demystify the power of the, um, that, uh, that lie of what whiteness is and also at the same time, because I think one of the things that I, I, I think white folks struggle with is, you know, I was in a meeting and we were talking about my research and one of the faculty on the committee was like, well, there is no culture of whiteness. There is no white culture. And I'm like, well, it is, the, it is 
it is defined in the dominance of, of, of the way that we frame things. So you're, you're just thinking in the concept, uh, concept, concept of ethnicity um, and cultural heritage. And so, you know, not that we continue to name drop, but um, we said his name a few times. Nolan Cabrera wrote this piece on, on the folks that were kind of coming out um, and, and naming the fact that they had basically been posing as people of color. And he wrote, white people are suffering from the Faustian bargain their ancestors made, giving up their cultural for social dominance. So how do you reverse engineer that? Because if you're going to celebrate heritage, which is what some white people say, well, I'm Irish, so therefore I can celebrate that, right? But they, they still get they still get the whiteness too, right? So we have to undo that aspect. We have to decenter de that. But I don't even know if it's possible to reverse engineer that. But I do, I do hear what you're saying, Josie, because I agree. I do think we should celebrate our differences. I do think we should celebrate the cultural aspects without appropriating them. I think we should learn about what that means and how we can carefully celebrate and, and celebrate each other while at the same time being better humans to one another. Because I do feel like that is a lost art um, that is just gone. It, 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 you, it's, it is very difficult to have a conversation with somebody, um, with a white person in particular, about how they engage on issues of white supremacy without them getting defensive and feel like, well, they, you know, and we, we talked about it again, they're searching for the reason to defend white supremacy, as opposed for just saying, well, that's really messed up. I probably shouldn't be doing that. But they want to defend it because that's, it's so ingrained in their, their nature of, of how they were indoctrinated. Um, that, you know, and that's why I use the most white possible thing to ever talk about race. I use, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the cave, um, by, uh, Plato, the allegory of the cave, because I, I feel like that's what we do in the society is we've created this cave and it's really difficult for people to get out. And that really is a good metaphor for me um, to explain that to white folks because they understand it. But it's a really white way to do it as well. Um, so, uh, Can I make a random comment? I just no. I, I just became aware that um, when you said name dropping a second ago that you were using that pejoratively against me earlier. And I like <laughs> that. I'd like to reframe that as citing sources and avoiding plagiarism. So that's that's all I just wanted to mention. Oh, okay. <laughs> Whatever. I wasn't using that pejoratively, maybe a little. On Saturday, don't forget to use the cave. Um, yeah, I got you. Yeah. Um, Any last yeah. thoughts before we, we send we send our listeners home with a a very entertaining and thoughtful and emotional, I think it was emotional at some points, to listen to the stories that you all shared um, episode? No, other than just to keep up the good fight, right? Like it just requires daily actions, small and big. And if you have children, you have to start to raise the resistance because um, that's where we can start to see some change. I think. Um, thank you. Yes, thank you. I think we're in an interesting time. Um, as as we've talked about the the changing demographics, so there are there are also is a growth in multiracial people that complicates our um, sort of racial classification in the U.S. And with that, I think um, 
people performing uh, performing other races is going to get more complicated because I think what we find is now younger multiracial people. So in previous generations, uh, multiracial people would tend to, um, especially black, white, multiracial, which is different in many ways from others, but they would tend to pick black or be forced to pick black um, by the history of hypo descent, the one drop rule in the US. And I think uh, younger people now are more likely to have more complicated racial identity. And so not to select one or I identify as multiracial person of color. Um, people younger than me might have even more different ways of identifying. And I think, you know, I, I think that what like Dolajal and these other people have done is problematic, but I also think it's gonna be harder to, to even imagine what that would be in 20 or 30 years um, for someone to be pretending to be a race that they're not. Um, it, it's just, everything's evolving and that's partly why this continues to be an interesting um, and also troubling um, thing to study and pay attention to and live. And that I think is a good teaser for our next episode, right, Josh? That's where we, I think we wanted to go yes. uh, next time. So way Don't, to go, David, you sociologist. Always setting it up. <laughs> a sociologist is a good thing too, but it sounds like he's implying it's not. <laughs> podcast if you have questions or feedback you can find us on twitter at disrupt whiteness with one s at the end of whiteness uh, or you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com always you can find us on our website whitenessinamerica.com until next time keep fighting the good fight